the book of Job, chapter 32, this evening, our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible, we want everybody to have a Bible. And so just men coming up the aisles with Bibles, just wave to them, get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, well, you do now. That's your gift from the Lord. You know, it's kind of funny, you read the book of Job and you've got such a long section, we've talked about it before, this where God speaks and we're given an idea of what is really happening in the, you know, big picture as it relates to Job and and his life and what God was accomplishing through his life. And then we're forced to uh, kind of read through chapter after chapter after chapter of these men speculating in their own wisdom upon what is really happening. And uh, this will happen all the way through uh, this evening. And it isn't until chapter 38 that God then uh, interrupts the speaker that we're going to be looking at tonight. And then God speaks. And it's a kind of a funny thing. God worked. He works all things together for good. And he makes everything to praise him. And uh, I don't know about you, but as I go through the week in this world, and I mean, how many voices do we listen to on a weekly basis? Are we forced to listen to man's wisdom? Wow! And then what does it do? It creates a hunger in us to again hear the voice of God. God, I've heard all of this stuff all week long, and now I get to hear your word. Or, Lord, I've heard all of this stuff all day long, and now I'm going to open your word up this evening and just let it wash me and cleanse me. Or to begin the day saying, Lord, I'm going to hear all manner of nonsense today. And, I, and uh, from the best of people, and, but I want to have that tearless communication that comes from you to be poured into my life. And so it's so great when God steps into the scene in the book of Job and then begins to speak. But we have to um, put up with another man's uh, speculations this evening as we begin in chapter uh, 32. We remember that Job's three friends, they have stopped speaking all the way back in uh, uh, chapter 25. They stopped talking to Job and stopped trying to contend for the fact that he had all of this happening in his life because of sin. They realized there's no getting through to him. We're going to leave it in the hands of God. Only God can convince him of the truth of our arguments. And so they stopped talking. And then Job had one kind of, uh, mounts this one final uh, defense related to his innocence there beginning in uh, chapter 26 and on through 31. And then finally we're told at the end of chapter 31, the words of Job were ended. And so he just falls silent. But these four men were not the only people on that scene. Uh, This was a theological uh, argument in a part of the world at that time where theology or a discussion concerning God was the highest discussion. People were very interested in discussions about God. And you have to remember it wasn't a time when they had computers and television and radio and iPods and electronics and entertainment and traveling circuses and all of this other stuff. It was a pretty quiet life, very agrarian society. And so when there was something unusual happening in the village or in the city, and then it was bringing out the best of the so-called theologians to discuss a particular issue, this was 
of great curiosity to a lot of people. And so a crowd would gather. And that's what's happened around them. There were a lot of men that were listening to what was being uh, spoken. And one of those uh, men was a younger man by the name of Elihu. And as we're going to see in just a moment, uh, he's a very, very brash young man and uh, definitely filled with a great sense of his own self-importance. And that can be the affliction of youth. And I don't say it is of all youth, but he certainly was afflicted in that way. But it's not what we're going to look at. Your, I mean, we're going to read some stuff that is just jaw-dropping in terms of this man's arrogance and his pride tonight. But before we get to, before he opens his mouth and kind of, uh, you know, displays his pride and his arrogance, it is good to remember that he does a couple of very, very good things here uh, as, he, as he begins to speak. On the upside... He did listen to Job's arguments uh, much more carefully than Job's friends did. And when he did listen to Job's arguments, he he really, really did try to come uh, to an honest assessment of what Job was trying to say and then formulate some kind of an argument related to what it was that he was saying. So he really did try to listen. His contention was a little bit different from Job's three friends. They thought all of his problems were a result of sins that he had committed uh, prior to the calamity in his life, prior to uh, all of these problems kind of alighting upon his life. Elihu contended that God sends suffering not necessarily to punish us for sins, but to keep us from sinning. And he's going to bring that out And then he also makes a second contention that God allows suffering in order to make us better persons. Now, the problem with what he says is both of those things are true. God can use suffering in that that way in a person's life. He can't allow suffering to keep us from sinning. Paul wrote concerning his own life, 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 1, he wrote, Unless I should be exalted above measure, that is to be lifted up in pride, by the abundance of the revelations that he had received from God, he said, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And so God uh, can allow suffering to keep us from sinning. He can also allow suffering to uh, develop godly character in our lives, Hebrews chapter 12. And furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he that is God for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness." So he's, he's putting forth two truths that are absolutely biblical truths. The problem is they had nothing to do with Job. And they had nothing to do with Job's circumstances. Those were not the reasons that God had allowed suffering into Job's life. And so even though his contention concerning Job's situation was much more gracious toward Job than the others had made, it was just as useless as their contentions. He was... Uh, he was as much a worthless physician as the others were because uh, a physician, again, has to get the diagnosis right 
to then get the cure or the remedy right. And he's as wrong about why Job is in the place that he is in as Job's three uh, friends. And so he's going to defend Job from the accusations that are leveled against him by his three friends, but he's going to replace those false accusations with uh, accusations that are equally uh, false. And so Elihu begins his first speech here, and he directs it to Job's three friends in chapter 32. And he said, So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. There's no getting through to him, no getting him to see the truth of our arguments. And then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Baharel, the Buzite of the children of Ram, or the family of Ram, he was aroused against Job. And his wrath was aroused because Job justified himself rather than God. And also his anger was, his wrath was aroused against Job's three friends because they had found no answer and yet they condemned Job. And so here is Elihu. He's listening to these speeches that are going on, this theological discussion, and he is filled with wrath. Now, Elihu's name means, my God is he. So clearly he's been raised by godly parents and raised in a godly home. And uh, he has two big issues that have upset him and is going to provoke his speaking. His wrath against Job was that Job uh, defended his own innocence, but in doing so, he threw God under the bus. He, it would have been very easy for Job to combat the argument of his three friends that he was guilty of secret sin. He could have disputed that, said, I am not guilty of secret sin, and he could have left it there and never kind of impugned the reputation of God. But that's not what he did. What he did is he said, I am innocent and there is something wrong that God does not bring forth my innocence. There's something wrong because God allows me to be falsely accused and does not arise to my defense. So he defends himself by throwing God under the bus and he didn't need to do that. And in that, Elihu is, is absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with contending as it relates to our own reputation with the facts of a situation, but we don't need to then begin to speak for God or begin to denigrate his reputation in order to protect our own. And so Elihu, he listened to that, and it really upset him. And that kind of thing uh, can upset a person that loves the Lord and loves the Scriptures. And so, uh, you know, he has a right to be a little bit upset about this, but he's going to go uh, way overboard. And his wrath against Job's friends was because they found no answer, and yet they condemned Job. In other words, they condemned Job without sufficient evidence. And so uh, he, he's very, very angry with them because they didn't represent God properly. They didn't represent God and God's case against Job as well as they might. And so he's upset with everyone. And the Bible says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I don't know if you've ever gotten angry in a carnal fashion, but probably not any of us. But in other churches, they're filled with people like that. But if you get angry, we get angry in a carnal, fleshly way 
we never help God's cause. Never. Never. Oh, no, I need to get angry because it makes me say things I wouldn't say otherwise. Never. We never help God out with that. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. All it does is it forces us now to go back and apologize for what it is that we've said and the further mess that we've made of the situation. And then we have to start from scratch in dealing with the situation, usually in a pretty damaged uh, relationship at that point. So he's really upset with everyone. Verse 4. Now, because they were years older than he, Job had waited to speak, uh, or Elihu had waited uh, to speak to Job. And that was common in the culture. Uh, it was absolutely unthinkable. You know, we're, if you're ever in a store or you're talking with a parent at church or some other place and a child comes up and interrupts an adult conversation, that just didn't happen in that culture. This wasn't allowed. The, the, the younger never uh, interrupted the dealings or the communication of the elders. That was just nurtured in the culture. So we live in a culture that is very youth-oriented and youth-dominated. And because it is so youth-oriented and there is so little respect given to the older generation, what happens is that each new generation in our culture, not in all cultures in the world, each new generation then is forced to make the same mistakes, the same mistakes, the same mistakes, when making the same mistakes becomes more and more dangerous for each generation because we won't learn from the older generation. But it wasn't that way in the Middle Eastern culture of that day. The older generation dominated the culture. Uh, They dominated everything. And so it was a more stable culture, a more respectful culture as a result. Not everywhere in the ancient world, but in that Middle Eastern context that was uh, the case. And so he very, very politely, very, very patiently, he had waited uh, to speak. And as far as, and in listening to everything, the conversation has gone uh, unsatisfactory in, in every way that it could. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So they stopped speaking and he's just, his, his jaw drops He can't believe. You mean you're going to let Job off the hook for what he's done? I mean, you're trying to tell him all about secret sin. We don't need to judge him about secret sin. He's blaspheming God right and left. He's exalting his own reputation at the expense of the reputation of God, and you guys are going to go silent? You don't have anything else yet to say to Job? So he's really fuming at all of this. So Elihu... He answered and he said to these three men, I am young in years and you are very old. Come here, come here, come here, come here. Why are you older? (laughs) Therefore I was afraid and I dared not declare my opinion to you. I said age should speak and the multitude of years should tape. uh, teach wisdom. So he acknowledged the importance of respect for uh, for age on the part of those uh, who were younger and uh, and in general, all things being equal, the older person will be wiser than the younger person. All things being equal, they're never equal. 
But just by virtue of long experience in life, an older person should know more than a younger person does. And certainly uh, uh, in the context of godliness and in a relationship uh, with God. And so uh, he said, I was uh, uh, out of respect uh, uh, for you. I said, age, I'm going to listen. I'm not going to speak. I'm young. They have, I'm going to learn something from those who are older. But he said, there is a spirit in man. And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. So Elihu is saying that, listen, not all wisdom in life comes from age and experience. God can give youth wisdom that older people don't uh, experience, and he feels he has that wisdom, and he needs to speak it uh, into the situation. And great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand uh, justice. And that is true. One of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31, the silver-haired head, so you see why I uh, enjoy that verse so much, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if, it's a conditional word, it's found in the way of righteousness. And so it assumes godliness in an older life. And when you see a gray uh, head and a gray hair, this is is so against dyeing your hair. It's so wrong on every level here. Look at you. you, You've just disqualified yourself for one of the great verses in the Bible. I'm just kidding. Do what you want. But, But there is that. Uh, it, it assumes the godliness. And when you see an older person who is godly and growing in godliness, then uh, typically they're a great, uh, great influence for righteousness. But it's not always so. There's a lot of older people in this world, all over this world. I think about the entertainment, uh, entertainment industry and lots of other places beside that. Older people who are a terrible influence upon our culture and upon uh, the youth. And so he says it isn't always uh, true, but it should be true. And therefore I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I have waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I have listened to you. I've given you a fair hearing. Now I ask that you give me a fair hearing as well. I paid close attention to you. And surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. So he says, listen, I know you guys are pretty close to your arguments. You're pretty emotional with everything that you said to Job. But I'm telling you as an impartial listener, I listened to everything you said. And you did not build an adequate case against Job in the way that you think you did. You think you did. But you did not. And he is saying, not only did you not convince Job of his wrongdoing, but you didn't even convince me of Job's wrongdoing. So he's a pretty bold guy, pretty direct. I mean, he's got a sharp mind in some, uh, some respects, and, and uh, he's, got a, he's a little proud of it, but, uh, but it's there. Lest you say, 
we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. And so this gives us insight in verse 13 to the reason that they stopped talking to Job was they're just saying, we'll leave God to judge him. He won't listen to us. The only thing left for him now, if he won't listen to good advice, is for God to lower the boom on him. Now, he has not directed his words against me, and so I will not answer him with your words. In other words, he says, now when I'm going to speak to you, he said, uh, I, I, uh, I know that things are tense between you and Job. So when Job speaks, you're all emotionally defensive and, and mentally defensive. And so I'm not going to represent Job in this conversation. I'm going to represent uh, myself and, 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 and be a defense uh, for, for Job. I'm going to, I could answer for him. I, I can speak what he would want to speak to you, but without all of the emotional kind of baggage. They are dismayed and answer no more, speaking of their silence. Words escape them. And I have waited because they did not speak because they stood still and answered no more. So Job got done with his speech and he's frustrated that these guys didn't jump in. And he said, I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion For I am full of words, and oh boy, is he full of words. He's going to keep talking all the way through chapter 37 of this book. And he only stops because God interrupts him. He might have kept on going, and our Old Testament would be twice the size that we have on our lap if God hadn't done that. Well, sometimes we do that when we're younger. I've gone on and on. Listen, no amens, please. Longer than I should have on things. And uh, I remember one time I was teaching a Bible study downtown. Oh, you get older, you'd bring out all the stories, you know, when you're, that you're not a hero of. So I remember I was teaching one Bible study. This guy sitting there, he came to the church regularly in those days. So many people came to the church regularly in those days. But he sat there... And uh, uh, and I and I said something like and you know and and finally my final point here and he just audibly from the congregation he said there's more <laughs> and I said oh he said there's more excitedly uh, awaiting the next point that I'm going to make here so so I understand a little bit about all this. Uh, both sides of things. And so he was frustrated that they didn't uh, answer anymore. He has an opinion. He said, I will also answer my part. I too will declare my opinion for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent and it's ready to burst like new wineskins. And I will speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. And so in those days, they would use animal skins to put new wine in. It would ferment and uh, they would have to allow it to vent. Um, and if they didn't allow for some venting related to the fermentation of the wineskin, it would break, uh, the, the animal skin would break open. And it would always break open if you tried to use it a second time without proper venting. And that's why Jesus said you can't pour new wine into old wineskins, talking about a work of the Spirit into something religious system that the scribes and the Pharisees had established that was contrary to, to God's teaching and His 
uh, intent for the Old Testament. And so he's just saying, I'm just going to explode if I don't say something. Now, maybe not everybody understands that in the room, but perhaps some of you have been watching television or engaged in some kind of a conversation or whatever, and you hear the position that you happen to hold on one side of the argument being badly mangled. And you know how frustrating it can be that why don't they just say this and do this? I'm going to explode. And then you, you fear for the, the longevity of the remote in your hand and what might happen to it. So you put it down and turn the whole thing off and walk away. But this is the kind of frustration that he's feeling. And he said, let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone Nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter. I'm entirely incapable of it. Else my maker would soon take me away. God would kill me. He would take my life if I resorted to manipulating you uh, with with flattery. So he uh, kind of declares his impartiality related to the whole situation. I don't have a dog in this fight. And so all I want to do is bring out the facts and the truth. And here we go. And so that was his kind of introduction, expressing his frustration to the three. And then in chapter 33, he now uh, begins to address uh, Job himself. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I will open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. Oh, please. Now I open my mouth. Now my tongue speaks from my mouth. Do you have any nitroglycerin tablets for me? This is so exciting. The anticipation. My words come from an upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. In other words, I don't have any kind of secret agenda, no axe to grind here. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so he views himself, though younger, as an equal to Job by virtue of the fact that they've both been created by God. And if you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. I'm going to lay out a case. You correct me if I'm wrong. Truly I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. My intention isn't to terrify you, to take advantage of you in your emotionally frail condition or physical condition like I've watched your friends do. I'm going to be fair with you. I'm going to be uh, gentle with you. And surely you have spoken in my hearing... And I have heard the sound of your words saying, I am pure, without transgression, I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. And so he summarizes what he understands to be Job's argument concerning himself. And Job's argument, uh, number one argument was that they accuse me of being guilty of secret sin, but I am innocent of guilty uh, uh, of secret sin. And yet, as he lays out uh, the second case here, and yet he, that is God, finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all of my paths. And so, uh, you know, what I do have a problem with in 
he is saying to Job is that you, you say that you are innocent of sin, but now you begin to pull God in here as if he is treating you uh, unfairly. And so you can say the first, you can say, I'm guilt, not guilty of sin, but it isn't right to, again, as I've said, impugn the, the, uh, the character of, of God. And Elihu is exactly right. In, in all of this. And so he said, Look, in this you are not righteous, and I will answer you. For God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet God doesn't, man does not perceive it. So he says, You say that God has gone silent on you, Job, that he's not speaking in the situation. Has it ever occurred to you that God is speaking, but in ways that you can't understand? And, uh, and, and so he begins to speak of uh, different ways that God speaks, that uh, Job, he might be speaking to Job in the situation that Job isn't understanding. Uh, sometimes he speaks in a dream and in a vision of the night when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and he seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. And he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. And so he explains that one of the ways that God speaks is sometimes through dreams. We see that all through the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, that God spoke through dreams, he spoke through dreams to uh, Joseph and to Daniel and Ezekiel and others in the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, Peter on the day of Pentecost spoke of the fact that young men would have visions and old men would dream dreams. I guess we fall asleep while we're waiting for the vision. And so he still speaks the, the dreams. But he does speak through dreams. Now, that doesn't mean that all dreams are from God. Uh, some dreams come from buffalo wings uh, or pizza or Mexican food, just indigestion at night. You get crazy old dreams. And, but God can speak to us through dreams. And Elihu is right. And what he's bringing out here is sometimes God will warn us through dreams. So sometimes a person can be messing around with sin in their mind or contemplating doing a particular thing ripping off a business partner or it can be sexual or it can be uh, slandering someone or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden God will give you a dream of you committing the act that you're contemplating committing and then the consequences of that. And then you wake up from that dream and you're just so thankful that that didn't happen in real life and you realize, what am I doing playing with this? My whole reputation for God is at stake here in this nonsense and it causes a person to then back away and repent of that even being in their heart and their mind before they commit the sin. So God does that kind of thing, uh, can do it uh, even today. He went on to a second way that God sometimes speaks to us. He said, man is also chastened with pain on his bed. And so sometimes God speaks through uh, in chastening us and he speaks through uh, pain and in suffering. And with strong pain in many of his bones so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food, his flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out which once were not seen. By the way, Job, have you, ever, have you seen anybody around here that's like that? Yet his soul draws near the pit and his life to his executioner. So he's saying, and again rightfully so, that sometimes God 
can speak through chastening. He can bring suffering into our life because there's something about that suffering that puts us in a place that kind of incapacitates us to uh, commit a sin that we might otherwise commit. So we're pretty occupied about our trial or our situation or our physical suffering. And because we're so occupied with that for the moment or however long it might be, we don't really have time to get our uh, noses into something that's going to get us uh, into trouble. And again, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, spoke of this related to his own life again Quoting from Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul saying, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn of the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted uh, above measure. And so Paul was going to be susceptible, uh, potentially God saw to pride because of, I mean, look at how God used him. God said, I'm going to allow some difficulty in your life uh, to keep you really planted. In me, and sometimes God does that, and that's that's uh, one of His voices. Elihu is is correct uh, concerning that. But again, we want to be careful not to say that all suffering is is that. It's just a, one of the things that God can do. And He said, He said, if there is a messenger for Him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man His uprightness, then. He is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. So another way that God speaks is through a messenger, maybe an angelic messenger or maybe through a human messenger. And he is declaring himself to be that kind of a messenger. Job, you've been asking for a mediator between you and God, someone to represent God before you. And also here, here I am. So God speaks through messengers and, uh, and so he uh, uh, declares himself as potentially one of those messengers that God would speak through in Job's life. It is interesting when he talks about a messenger uh, f- sent from God. Notice in verse 23, uh, that messenger comes to show man God's uh, uprightness or his righteousness. It's a beautiful sermon, verses 23 and 24 on Jesus himself. The volume of the book testifies of Jesus. He came into the world to declare to us the righteousness that is required in order to enter into heaven a perfect righteousness, sinlessness. And when a person realizes that's the standard to get in heaven, then we give up on trying to establish our own righteousness through good works before God. And we start to ask God, okay, where is this perfect righteousness to be found? Because I've always dis- already disqualified myself. And then he that is God says to, is gracious uh, to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. And so Jesus came to show us God's uprightness. He provided the Father with a ransom to deliver us from the consequences of our sin. He allows us the privilege of repentance. And repentance not only allows us to escape the pit or the judgment that we deserve, but it also releases us into a life of light and the life that God has for us. Jesus has paid uh, the ransom. And then in... uh, his flesh shall be like a, uh, shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God, and God will delight in him. For he shall for 
He shall see his face with joy, for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men and says, uh, I have sinned and perverted what is right. It did not profit me. And, I, and he will redeem his soul from going down to the pit and his life shall see the light. And so God can speak through a messenger to call mankind to repentance. And then this is the life that's enjoyed when we heed that message. It's a great, it's a great, great truth. It just didn't apply to Job or to Job's situation. Behold, God works all of these things twice, in fact. These are all the different ways that God can speak. Many other ways, but three of the ways that God speaks to man. Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the, life, with the light of God. And give ear, Job, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will speak. He's just calling on Job uh, to continue to listen to him. Job might be doing one of these. I never see it in this room because I always then look to the other side of the room at attentive faces. And so he might have been losing Job. Job's attention here, so he calls him for greater attention. He says, if you have anything to say, answer me. Too late. Speak, for I will desire to justify uh, you. So Job doesn't uh, answer him. Job is probably, he's laid his case. He's not interested in another theological discussion that's as misguided as the first one was. He's committed his reputation to God to take care of. And so he's just probably not going to enter into this uh, on any, uh, under any invitation, but it, he, he is polite enough to invite Job to chime in anywhere that he wants to. But if not, uh, listen to me, hold your peace, and I will teach you uh, wisdom. And so uh, if Job had uh, nothing to add to what he'd been saying, then just keep quiet, Job, and continue to be uh, enlarged in wisdom by listening to me. And Elihu further answered, and he said, Hear my words, you wise men. And so this is his second speech to Job's friends. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. And so he said, basically he's saying, you guys, you keep listening to and get ready for a verbal feast. I'm not done. I'm going to keep speaking to you. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. And so uh, Elihu denounced Job's claim that God was unjust. And that's what he's going to address here. Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. And so uh, God had failed to bring forth his innocence. And should I lie concerning my right, my wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Job was complaining that God had not protected him physically. And then uh, he he's encapsulating Job's arguments. And then he says, What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water, who goes in the company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said, It profits man nothing that he should delight in 
God. And so he accuses Job of being a deliberate sinner, of accompanying wicked people, and also of blaspheming God by saying it really doesn't profit to walk with God. Uh, The same miserable things happen to the righteous and to the unrighteous. And therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit Uh, uh, iniquity. And so Elihu defends uh, God concerning the accusation that he was being uh, unfair. And he says, basically, God is incapable of of being wrong. It just cannot happen. God cannot be wrong. He's got to be innocent of that charge of Job. For he repays man according to his work. And he makes man find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Man only gets what he deserves. Job is getting what he deserved. And who gave him charge over the earth? Who appointed God to be God? Or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath All flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. The Bible teaches that the Lord holds our very next breath in his hand. So how uh, intimately and actively involved is God in my life? He's as near and as involved as your next breath. Without him, we don't take the next breath. And then life is over for us. So basically, Elihu is saying that the very existence of man is an evidence of the grace of God. So he can't be uh, accused of, uh, of wrongdoing. And so uh, he, he could sovereignly just destroy everyone. He doesn't do it because he is, is gracious. And so God is above this attack by, uh, by Job that God isn't active in man's life or that he is not being gracious. If you have understanding, hear this and listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern, will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless and the nobles, you are wicked? Uh, so, no, it isn't appropriate in the ancient world to say to a king or to a prince that, you, especially without cause, you are worthless or that you are wicked. And so Elihu is saying, if you wouldn't say that to a mere human king, then why in the world would somebody accuse God of the same? But, of course, Job never really said that about God his art. That's always the way these arguments go. Nobody sticks to what really got said, just to what they think they heard. And he, yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, in the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. For his eyes are on the ways of men, and he sees all of man's steps. There's no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves, for he need not further consider a man what he should, that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He's 
strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they have turned back from him and would not consider his ways so that they cause the cry of the poor to come to him for he hears the cry of the afflicted when he gives quietness who can then make trouble and when he hides his face who then can see him whether it is against a nation or a man alone and that the hypocrite should not reign lest the people be ensnared. And so uh, basically Elihu is saying that if God judges uh, a man, we don't really need to know the reason why God judges a man. We don't, know, we don't need to know the specific sin. All we need to do is see a man as under judgment. And then all we need to know is there's a just reason for it. He must be guilty of sin whether he admits it or denies it, and uh, 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 even if, if we're unaware of it. And so he's saying Job can deny, but again, he's on the side of Job's three friends. These kind of things don't happen to somebody unless there's sin that only God uh, is aware of that's going on in the person's life. For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening and will offend no more? Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I, do, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms, just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I. Therefore, speak what you know. And so he rebukes Job for uh, demanding that God bring forth his innocence when it's clear that God knows that he isn't innocent. Again, all of it's false, but this is... He's, this guy, he's trying to refute the one group and he's still got one foot in the other group and his mind's going all over the place, but he's trying. Men of understanding say to me, uh, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the uttermost because he answers like those of wicked men. And he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and he multitudes his, uh, multiplies his words against God. And so he's now going down to the level of the other three. He accuses Job of being without knowledge, without wisdom. He's talking about God like wicked people talk about God. He, in his mind, he felt Job was blaspheming God. Then he adds rebellion to his sin. He's doing all this because he's got a rebellious heart. And then related to the clapping of his hands in verse 37, it gives us a little bit of a picture of what was happening in those discussions. So apparently, as Job's three friends are making these accusations that are false against Job, Job is waiting to speak. But when they make these blatant, declare these blatant lies concerning him, Job began to clap his hands. And that was a sign of, of great disrespect in that culture because you're interrupting the speaker. But it's a way in which a speaker allows the other person to continue to speak without interrupting him, but letting the audience know, I disagree completely with what this man is saying. And so while these men are laying out these arguments, Job is continually clapping his hands to express his frustration over the lies that are being uh, spoken uh, about him. And so this is a, probably a very, you know, kind of picturesque scene that is, is going on more than we can see sometimes uh, with the printed page. And then in uh, chapter 35, Moreover, Elihu, Elihu, 
answered and he said, and this is his second speech to Job. He said, do you think this is right? Do you say, my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage is it to be, uh, will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I have sinned? And so again, he begins to encapsulate Job's arguments again. And argument number one, I'm innocent. And, and so if God is judging me for sin and I'm innocent, then God is less just or righteous than me. That's, that's how uh, Elihu was interpreting the argument. And also uh, the, the second thing that Job was saying as he's encapsulating it is Job saying, if this is what happens to the righteous, to righteous in this world, in other words, you can suffer uh, worse than death, then what's the benefit of living a righteous as opposed to a sinful life? And he said, I will answer you, these contentions of yours and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against God? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you. In other words, your sin affects other men. But God hasn't made anything more or anything less by a person's individual sin. He's not changed in any way in heaven as a result of that. Your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness a son of man. And so... God is uh, supreme, he's saying. He's unaffected by a man's innocence or his guilt. And because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. And so he responds, uh, he uh, he reasons rather that God doesn't answer when the oppressed uh, uh, call out to him. He doesn't always do that, but there's reasons for that. And so, Job, you're crying out, God isn't answering me. Well, there's reasons for that, Job, and I'm going to tell you why. They're all wrong, but he's going to tell them it's his own theories. He said, because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the nights, who who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven. And so he says, people cry out in an oppressed condition like you are, Job, to God all of the time. Uh, but they, no one says, where is God my maker? They, they don't want to turn to God and deepen their relationship with God. They just want God to fix their problem. And so that's what he's accusing Job of. And nothing uh, could have been further from the truth. And the second reason that God doesn't answer uh, the cry of the oppressed as he understands it, there, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of pri- the pride of evil men. So God doesn't feel compelled to listen to the cries of evil men, Elihu contended. How would we all get saved if he didn't hear our cry as sinners for salvation? Surely God will not listen to empty talk. A third reason that God uh, doesn't uh, respond to uh, the oppressed's prayers for relief is sometimes what they're praying or what they're saying is just foolish 
empty talk and he doesn't feel compelled to enter into foolish conversations. Again, it isn't true, but this is what he's contending. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him and you must wait for him. And now because he is not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. In other words, Job, you'd be a lot better off not giving these long speeches and just repenting and trusting in God. That's his counsel uh, to him. Chapter 36, Elihu then proceeded and he said, bear with me a little and I will show you. So he, he's, maybe he's losing all four of them now. You know, they're just, let me just see how I'm doing. <laughs> So he said, bear with me a little and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I'm not halfway done here, gentlemen. There's a lot that God wants to continue to speak through me. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. I'm speechless. I mean, what do you say to that? Who who would, even if you thought it, why would you say it? Behold, God is mighty, but he despises no one. He is mighty in the strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, and he has seated them forever. And they are exalted, and if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, then they spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they will perish by the sword and they will die without knowledge. And so he's saying God is absolutely no respecter of persons and is dealing with uh, the wicked or dealing with the oppressed or dealing with the righteous. And so Job, this is what he does with the wicked and this is what he does with the righteous and look at where you are on this thing. It's the same old accusation. It's just uh, more eloquently put. But the hypocrites in heart, they store up Judge, they, they store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in their youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint and what is set on your table would be full of richness. But you are filled with the judgment that is due the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you because there is wrath. Beware lest he take you away with one blow for a large ransom would not help you to avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night 
when people are cut off in their place. In other words, what he's telling uh, Job here is that what you're experiencing is the judgment of the wicked. You need to repent. And he's telling him there in verse 20 about desiring the night. That's speaking of death. He's telling him, don't even think of committing suicide, so to speak, to escape the trial. Suicide is not the answer to escaping the consequences of your wickedness, but repentance is. Now, again, in certain situations, that is fabulous counsel. But it just doesn't have anything to do with Job. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? And so these judgments are righteous, Job, uh, because God has done them. Remember to magnify his work. In other words, Job, you'd be a lot better off spending your time worshiping the Lord and magnifying the Lord than complaining against him. And this is, this is to him, it was inconsistent uh, to your, a person is either going to magnify God in worship or they're going to complain against God, but those two things can't exist, uh, you know, in the, in the same heart. One is going to rise above the other. So he says, all of your complaining is because of a lack of reverence and respect for God. And if you would return to a great reverence for God and, and just give him the worship that he's due rather than complaining all the time, then your portion would be uh, much, much better. Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. Behold, God is great and we do not know him, nor can, we, can the number of his years be discovered. For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist. When the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man, indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunder of his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it. He covers the depths of the seas. In other words, he's created the seas and filled in these big pits, you know, that would otherwise they weren't filled with water. For by these he judges the peoples, he gives food in abundance, he covers his hands with lightning, and he commands it to strike. His thunder declares it, the cattle also concerning uh, the rising storm. So he says, just look at the weather. You don't have to just, just look at creation around you and what God controls, what he created And let that produce some wonder in your heart toward God and that will take you, move you into respect and reverence for God once again and you might be well on your way is what he's saying. Chapter 37. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. And so he uh, continues to speak of the greatness uh, of God as demonstrated in nature to continue to make the same point to Job. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. And after it, a voice roars. you, You see the lightning and then you wait for the thunder, you know. And so he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. 
God thunders marvelously with His voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. For He says, To the snow fall on the earth. Likewise, to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of His strength. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know His work. The beasts go into dens and remain in their lair. So look at the marvel of God just in the whole cycle of life related to animals. And from the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice has given and the broad waters are frozen. So again, look at nature, be in awe of nature, and then be in even more awe of the God who is behind all of it. And so he continues, he also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about being turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He causes it to come whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. He said, listen to this, O Job. And so he calls on on God uh, again just to continue to allow the voice of nature and the awesomeness of it to speak to him. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced and who uh, those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Do you know anything about any of this stuff, uh, Job? And if you don't know anything about clouds and how they hang in the air and what they're made of and all of those things, then... What in the world uh, makes you think that you can gain an audience with God and demand uh, that that you're going to trap him in some kind of a a court proceeding? Do you know how the clouds are balanced, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? By the way, I know I read that a moment ago, just for the record. Someday I won't, but I did today. Why are your garments hot? when he quiets the earth by the south wind. And with him have you spread, the, uh, spread out the skies strong as, ca- as a cast metal mirror. Teach us what we should say to him, for we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. Should he be told that I wish to speak? If, I, if a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Job, you want to take God to court and you want to cross-examine him, the only thing that will happen there is your ignorance will be exposed. What can we hope to argue against this God? He said, even now men cannot look at the light when it's bright in the skies. This is a very poetic speech. Job, you can't even look at the sun without having to turn away with your eyes. And yet you want to stand face to face with God in a courtroom. And again, just speaking of, of our smallness and, and all of this. And so within, when the wind has passed and cleared them, he comes from the north as golden splendor, with God as awesome, awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is excellent in power and judgment and abundant justice. He does not oppress, and therefore men fear Him. He shows no partiality to any who are 
are wise of heart. And so, Job, you need to worship the Lord for his splendor, his majesty, his power, his justice, the fact that he is impartial. That would be a better use of your time in the middle of your circumstances than questioning God and attempting to mar his reputation in order to salvage yours. There's a little bit of truth to what he's saying. It's a savage way in which he speaks it. And God is going to speak to Job because Job did overstep his bounds. And God is not going to uh, rebuke Job, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, because Job contended for his own innocence. But God is going to rebuke him for pulling God into the discussion in a way that misrepresented God. And to be fair with Job, you think about the trial that he's in. I mean, emotionally he's shot. Uh, Mentally he's shot. Physically he's shot. Spiritually he's just in the middle of the hardest thing a person can go through in, in life. And so they have introduced this idea that God is against him and they put the bait out there and he bit. And he shouldn't have bit, but he did bite. And that happens to a lot of us sometimes. And so God is understanding of it. God's going to rebuke him and correct him for that. But God's got much stronger words uh, for the three friends, and he basically ignores uh, Elihu for whatever reason. God never makes mention of him when God steps into and begins to address things finally in uh, chapter 38. So we have kind of made our way as best as I know how through these arguments and discussions of the three friends of Job and then the discussion and argument of Elihu because I don't want to miss the forest uh, you know, for the trees. And so we can, we can get up and look at every single thing that each one of them said. And there's, I mean, it, the poetic language is beautiful. There's so many sermons that are wrapped up in all of w- what's been spoken here. But the big picture is, is they've misjudged the entire situation. And uh, Job has gotten pulled into it. And now what is desperately needed is not for Elihu to continue to go on and on, but for God to step in and bring some order and uh, bring his holiness to the situation, which he does and we'll take a look at next week. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Well, Lord, we feel that these chapters of the book of Job have done exactly, well, at least one of the things they were intended to do, and that is to just wear us out and to not want to hear another person say another thing out of their ignorance or out of their speculations or even out of a misguided zeal for you. But only, Lord, We only want to hear your voice at this point. And we're glad that you didn't leave this situation in the theological and the intellectual ignorance that it was in at the end of chapter 37, but that you are a speaking God and that you love everyone involved in the situation. Yes, you love enough to chasten us when we're wrong. But we just want you to know that we're thankful for your voice in our life. We're thankful that there's another voice in our heads different than our own voice. 
thankful that there's another voice in this world than the voices of men and of women. Thank you, Lord, for your voice, your wisdom, your love, and for your grace. And we give you praise for all of that tonight, Lord, in sincerity from the bottom of our hearts in this place. And we give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.